94.7 KTWV HD3 Los Angeles. In Session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Before I get into the book of the week from this past week, the book of the week for this week that I'll talk on next Monday's show is The New Mind Readers by Russell A. Poldrack. The New Mind Readers, What Neuroimaging Can and cannot reveal about our thoughts. Uh, so I thought this could be an interesting book to get an idea of neuroscience research and what it can and can't tell us, even though we are able to scan the brain in ways that we were not before, we still haven't figured it out as well as many people would have predicted, let's say, a decade ago. So I think this book, what I liked actually was that it said what neuroimaging can and cannot reveal about our thoughts. So I'm assuming it'll talk about the limitations as well. So looking forward to reading that and sharing it with you next week. And actually the book from this week is from a neuroscientist also, but sharing more her own journey and experience. And so the book of the week was The Neuroscientist Who Lost Her Mind by Barbara K. Lipska. The Neuroscientist Who Lost Her Mind, My Tale of Madness and Recovery. And so uh, this was an interesting book following the experiences over a few years of Barbara Lipska. Dr. Barbara Lipska is a neuroscientist and she has done a lot of research, but especially she is known for research she has done on schizophrenia, where even there's something called the Lipska model of explaining schizophrenia, um, which... Uh, I won't get into the details partially because I don't know all the details, but relates to not just uh, something like a dopamine hypothesis, which is what was traditionally talked about, where there was deficiency of dopamine in certain parts of the brain that led to schizophrenia, but it was more about connectivity and especially the hippocampus and how the hippocampus connects to the frontal lobe, which also does seem to be what we're seeing more and more rather than... Um, mental illnesses being caused by just one part of the brain or one neurotransmitter that's either deficient or too much. It seems like it's more about connectivity between brain regions that sometimes is faulty. But she's done a lot of research and is very well known for that, the Lipska model of uh, schizophrenia. But what was fascinating here was, so as the title implies, the neuroscientist who lost her mind, she shares with us her journey of having melanoma that spreads to her brain. And she has 
tumors and lesions in her brain that affect her cognitive functioning. And so that's why she's saying my tale of madness and recovery. Uh, madness sounds a little bit extreme, although, I mean, she did really become um, cognitively declined over time that she had the cancer, but it wasn't that she went mad and did some crazy things. She does seem to have done things she regrets, especially becoming a lot more aggressive and mean to people around her, including her family members. Um, but she does describe how her health deteriorated and also all the treatments she went through and eventually gaining back her ability to think like she used to. So she shares her story uh, about her family, about her kids along the way. So it's much more of a personal, almost, if you want to call it memoir, but of a few years of her life than some of the other books I talk about on the show. But it was quite fascinating to see what she went through. And so she starts off sharing about her life and she studies brains at what they call the Brain Bank. So she was um, working at the Human Brain Collection Corps at the National Institute of Mental Health in America, where they study brains and every day they're trying to get brains from nearby morgues and hospitals and places so that they can um, use the brains and understand the brains further and also share them with researchers around the world. So she was at the height of her career when she was unfortunately diagnosed with melanoma, which was, I think, her third bout with cancer. So she had dealt with cancer before, including breast cancer, um, and now the melanoma had spread to her brain. And so she noticed things like, first, she couldn't see things in part of her visual field. And what was interesting is there's a lot of themes throughout the book. One of them that uh, is very obvious is the wanting for things to be okay and because we want things to be okay, we don't really look at what's going on uh, objectively. So she was noticing some signs, and even she said she realized, uh-oh, this could be something related to a brain tumor, but she didn't want to acknowledge it until it started to get started to get a little worse. And so she was going to go to a conference and had to fly across the country, and it was her favorite conference of the year that she was so excited about every year to go through, and she was a go-to, and she was going to be giving uh, the, the keynote address, I believe, where she was introducing, actually, the conference. And so even though she was doing so poorly, she said, I'm still going to go. But eventually she had to not go because she couldn't make it. And so she, I think it was the day before, she had to cancel her flight and she was so heartbroken not to be there. And so this theme comes up throughout the book from herself um, in her story that she didn't want to at times accept that she was not okay from uh, not wanting to acknowledge what might be going on to not wanting to acknowledge that she was getting weaker. She is an incredible um, endurance athlete competing at times in different types of marathons and Ironman types of events. And so she even would want to work out. And she did even still when she was sick, walking at least. Um, but she wanted to go for runs and bike rides as if she was okay. But it was hard for her to accept that maybe she wasn't quite as strong as she once was. And so we see her slowly go through um, this deterioration where she times becomes disoriented she goes to places she's been before and she says when did they move everything around or even she starts the book talking about a time when she was running um, and she got lost trying to find her way home not only did she get lost trying to find her way home she decided on a whim to color her hair and so she was coloring her hair and put the plastic 
kind of, um, I guess you call it almost like a shower cap on to color her hair. And then the, the hair dye was running down her neck. And so she looked quite, you know, that's where the madness maybe comes in. That She talks about my tale of madness, but she was running through her neighborhood and then couldn't find her way home. Um, and now she finally got home and there's hair dye running down her neck and, and she, her husband sees her and is in shock. But to her, she wasn't quite aware of what was going on. And th- so that was another interesting thing that sometimes people, when they have mental illness or they're dealing with some kind of a brain issue like she was, they're not aware that they are impaired where it's hard for them to really recognize that. And so we see that with some illnesses like schizophrenia, where the person doesn't have insight, we call it, into their own illness. So they don't realize, oh, I'm having these paranoid thoughts. They think it's real. The FBI really is after me. And so she had some of that as well, where at times she wasn't aware that she was deteriorating and that she lost some of her abilities. And so that was one thing that she experienced was being disoriented, not being able to remember things, but also, as I mentioned earlier, she saw a huge shift in her mood at times, or she was very irritable. And so she was very mean to family members. And even she shares one incident where she was very short with one of her grandkids who she adores, and she keeps talking about how much she loves them, but she got mad at one of them and was annoyed by them. And so she snapped and uh, later felt horribly about it. But At the time, she just thought he was being very annoying. And so it's interesting to see in the way she describes everything is very clear, but you get the sense that the only way she was able to tell this story was by piecing it together with her family members' help. Because, for example, she'll talk about being with her son and they pass by a a car that had a tree that fell on it. And she's like, wow, look at that car. And the tree fell on it. That's so horrible. They go to the drugstore. When they walk out, she says again, wow, look at that car with the tree that fell on it. And her son is shocked. Did she really not remember that just 30 minutes ago, an hour ago, she said that same thing when she saw that car. So it's very sad. You see her go through all this. You see her family Again, they also at times not wanting to accept that she was losing what she was losing. And also they shared with her how sad it was that they weren't sure if they were going to get her back because not only was there the cognitive decline as far as thinking goes, but her personality had changed so much. And because she had the cancer that was very serious and at times they gave her at one point only four to seven months to live, um, but now it's been a few years and thankfully she's still alive, um, they they were worried that this was the last way they would see her, that she would keep deteriorating, she would become this version of herself that they could barely recognize, or at least exaggerated version of herself, and that this would be it. So it was very painful for her family as well. And as she puts it, because she didn't remember some of those incidents the way they did, it was almost harder on them than it was on her. So it was also a story of family and seeing how much family of course we love each other and then we get affected when the people we love go through these types of things which unfortunately are part of real life and that's the other part that was very uh, for me um, that stood out for me was remembering how fragile life is and our health is and things like our brain which it's incredible all the things it's able to do but it's very easy or some slight changes can make it where it doesn't do everything so well so you see her as I mentioned before, issues with vision, forgetting things, not being able to remember things. Her frontal lobe appeared to have some big um, tumors, which made it so that she was 
unable to do some of the functions of the frontal lobe, like planning or thinking ahead. And that's what made her likely was what made her very impulsive. So it was interesting to see that, but a reminder of how fragile uh, our health is and our functioning is and the brain as incredible as it is, of course, can easily lose some of its functioning. And that's what she went through. But that's what's interesting is to see her go through this feeling, quote unquote, normal, going through the cancer and all the different treatments. And she gets into detail with the different types of radiation and new treatments and experimental treatments and immunotherapy and all these things she went through to try to battle the cancer and then eventually coming out of it. But as she mentions, she's always aware that she can lose it again. And uh, she does talk about something that many people do experience who go through a life-threatening illness, which is that they're very grateful for every day. So she was saying she's really trying to enjoy every day and is grateful that she still gets to be alive and enjoy them because she knew she was very close to losing all of that. Uh, and then the, at the end of the book, she talks about finally doing another um, endurance type of uh, activity, an Ironman competition where she competed with uh, also with her husband and another family member, but doing the swimming aspect of the, the Ironman. And that was very sweet that she ended that way, but it was very important for her to kind of get that sense of normalcy back that I can compete at that level or I can push myself in this way. And so you see her go through that and end the book um, with that story of finally getting back to that point, which I thought was very nice. But it was a fascinating book of seeing someone go through something very horrible, but sharing her story that gives us some insight into what it was like to go through all of that and made me think of when I see someone who is acting a little bit differently, or I don't even know them and acting a certain way, you never know what they're going through. Uh, she shares a story of going to physical therapy and she just snapped at the person that, and it was their first session and was very mean and rude and eventually walked out. And, uh, but she went back to that physical therapist. She didn't remember that it was the same one. And the person said, oh, I thought you would never come back. And she was very kind and forgiving her because she understood what she was going through. Um, and that was very uh, touching to her that although she was so mean to this woman, that she was so forgiving of her and understood what she was going through. But a reminder that you never know what someone is going through. And also people can be changed by things that they're going through that they're not even aware of because she didn't realize what she was going through. So that itself was also interesting. So this book is an interesting uh, exploration of someone going through an illness. You see the aspects of family. You see the aspects of um, herself, seeing herself change and even thinking about our identity. Who am I when our brain changes? Am I still the same person or is this a different version of me or is this me that I'm ill, but then I'll be healthy again? And so she talks about even surviving cancer and what that means to be a survivor. Uh, but I did enjoy hearing her story and sharing with what she went through. So if you're interested in hearing a, a memoir of someone going through the experience of losing their mental stability uh, and then gaining it back and what they went through, but also just an experience of family and love and uh, someone's story, you can check this book out, The Neuroscientist Who Lost Her Mind, My Tale of Madness and Recovery by, by Barbara K. Lipska. And again, the book of the week for this week, The New Mind Readers, What Neuroimaging Can and Cannot Reveal About Our Thoughts by Russell A. Poldrack. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. We'll be right back.
welcome back. For this segment, I wanted to talk about a movie I saw last week, a movie that maybe many of you have seen because it's been so popular in the box office and also quite controversial, but that's Joker movie. I guess it's not the Joker. A Joker, which is grossing a lot of money, especially for a movie that is rated R, but it's a very controversial movie, a very, very dark movie, disturbing, intense. Um, I would still say I think it was a good movie, but it's a movie that would be hard for me to watch again because it was so dark. And most of that is because of the acting done by Joaquin Phoenix, who plays the title character Joker. And you see him as someone who's dealing with serious mental illness even to start the film. By the way, maybe I should say spoiler alert. If you haven't seen the movie, I might reveal some things in the movie, but I won't reveal too much, I don't think, more about the generalities of the movie itself. Um, but from the beginning of the movie, you can see he's dealing with some serious mental illness, but you see him going through more pain and hardship and being treated very poorly and the effect this has on him and you see him uh, deteriorate even further i know i was talking in the last segment about the neuroscientist whose mind was deteriorating but this is a little bit different from that um, but you see him going through so much so just wanted to share some thoughts about the movie one is even as i'm talking about it i still have some thoughts of well, is it too dark and disturbing? Does it have a negative effect on people? Even for me, it was quite disturbing to, to watch it. Now, I'm someone who talks a lot on this show about how even if something is sad, doesn't mean that makes it, makes it bad. So I'm not saying because it was sad or dark, that necessarily means it, it shouldn't be out there, but it was so dark and in some ways talked about violence in a way that made it almost okay or made you think, well, maybe it's okay then for people to kill or hurt one another if they're really feeling hurt by other people. Um, that made me still grapple with that of like, well, is this good for this movie for people to see it? It's something I'm, I'm still even thinking about, to be quite honest. But um, I think it could have a positive impact in some ways, but also negative in other ways, some of which I'll share. So one I definitely wanted to talk about and one that's very important for me is that here we see a story of someone who's mentally ill and then is also very violent. And unfortunately, this perpetuates this myth that people who are mentally ill who are, or who have mental health problems are very dangerous and violent and that most of them are violent or that you should be scared of someone who has mental illness. Where first of all, mental illness is something that is much more common than we like to think, affecting many people, um, even some estimates will say one in five or one in four, depending on how you look at it or if you're talking about a lifelong issue or not. But even people who are severely mentally ill, they are not likely to be dangerous. And actually, they're much more likely to be the victims of violent crime. And some statistics say that people with se severe mental illnesses are over 10 times more likely to be the victims of violent crime than the general population. So they're much more likely than most people to be uh, victims rather than the perpetrators. But we tend to think of the crazy guy who gets a gun and kills people or the crazy guy who just stabs someone for no reason. And are there stories like that? I'm sure there are. Of course there are. But does that mean most people are that way? No. 
And so when we look in media and they're showing movies and most of the time someone who's very mentally ill is being violent and hurtful to other people, it perpetuates this myth. And people can say, well, see, some people do it. But yeah, we're talking about representations and proportions. I'm an Iranian-American. Has an Iranian-American ever murdered someone? Of course they have. But if in every movie, Iranian-Americans only murdered people, I would be upset that I would say, you're representing Iranian-Americans in a bad way. And if someone said, well, yeah, there's this guy and he killed someone and he was Persian, I would say, yes, that's true. But it's about how much we're showing or how we're representing it. That's the issue I have. And unfortunately, this is a very strong myth that people who are mentally ill are people we should be afraid of. And this has several negative consequences. Um, to begin with, it makes it easier for us to dehumanize them. So we think, oh, these are just these crazy people who are, we have to protect ourselves from, or we have to lock them up, or we have to not help them because they're just going to hurt people or kill people or do bad things. So let's not actually help them which is very unfortunate because these are people who are suffering from mental illness. They are in pain and you actually feel his pain in the movie, which that part of it I thought was good, that it was very painful because you felt his pain. Um, but unfortunately it makes us, so we look at people who are mentally ill and severely mentally ill as things we have to protect ourselves from, um, things we have to stay away from and makes it in a way okay not to help them. Well, they're just crazy people that are going to do bad things. Why should I, why should we spend tax money on taking care of these people, which is very unfortunate because these are human beings who are suffering and the overwhelming majority of which are not harmful at all and don't want to harm anyone, um, but they just deserve help. And so that was one big issue I had about the movie, that it's a very overarching one because it's really the theme of the movie is that he's mentally ill and then he's very violent. And so they're very tied together. So that was one big point that I... I even before I went in, was already thinking about, but saw it in the movie, um, but do want people to think about that the way we view people can be very much influenced by media and the ways we think and talk about certain individuals, and that can affect how we act towards those people. It's similar um, and related to actually the homeless population, who we very easily think of as somehow less than human, unfortunately, they get dehumanized. Uh, somehow they don't deserve help or they've they, they became homeless because of something they did or they're all drug addicts or they're all crazy is also what people will say. And so they're going to be homeless no matter what, which is not true. These are also people who deserve help, uh, who are not harmful people or bad people that we should be afraid of. They deserve help. And the reason why I say they're related is that in the United States, I'm sure in other countries as well, many people who are mentally ill are homeless and many people who are homeless are mentally ill. So there is a relationship there. But so for me, that was something that it can perpetuate this myth of fear, the mentally ill, the mentally ill are violent, which I think is a very negative and bad stereotype. Um, there was a lot of interesting themes throughout the, the movie. Another one for me was his mom in the movie would actually call him happy. So, you know, he's a clown when even the movie starts, that's his profession. So he's a clown and he would, she would call him happy and would say he was always happy all the time, always smiling and laughing all the time. And it was interesting because even at some point in the movie, he talks about how he was never happy or he's never been happy uh, a second in his life, but he always acted happy for her. And so, of course, this is a much very extreme case, but it reminds me of how so many parents, um, a lot of Iranian parents, but a lot of parents in general, are always telling their kids to be happy all the time, that you shouldn't be sad, 
that you should be happy and smiling, or they show you that I like it when you're happy and I don't like it when you're sad. So you should be happy and you shouldn't be sad. And so it teaches them to put their sad feelings away. It teaches them that sad feelings are bad feelings. So if you're feeling sad, that makes you um, not good, maybe unlovable, all sorts of bad things. And so that to me stood out very strongly because I see it so much. Obviously in milder forms, thankfully it doesn't get to this point, but that this obsession we can have with happiness and then this obsession parents can have with making sure their kids are smiling all the time. Oh, my kid is smiling. I'm a good mom or dad. My kid is crying. I'm a bad mom or dad, which is not true. Unfortunately, can uh, lead to exacerbating mental health issues or creating them in some ways where people feel like they should not uh, be sad and they should be happy all the time. So that was very interesting. And he always wanted to make, he even says, I want to make people happy all the time. He's trying to make his mom happy. And, and so that was very significant. And then another uh, theme that to me was very prevalent in the movie was how we treat one another. Because you see this character, I think Arnold, was that his name? Um, and he goes, or Arthur, uh, Arthur Fleck was the character's name in the movie. And you see him getting treated so badly by people. Uh, you see a group of teenagers who steal his sign while he's working and then beat him up and other people are hurting him. And so he's constantly treated so negatively. And so really the movie in a way is showing that this is what makes him go to this darker place to become more violent, which some of it is true. It doesn't mean everyone who's put down is going to react in that way, but it does create a hurt and with the hurt feelings also can lead to resentment and anger. And sometimes people are going to act out on that, but regardless of how they act out on it, how they feel is very important. So this is also something the movie does, which has some pros and cons in a way is that you start to really feel for this character, this Arthur, who then also ends up hurting lots of people too. And then you're left with these mixed feelings of, I kind of feel bad for this guy. I feel like the way people treated him was very unfair. So I can kind of understand that he was so hurt and so angry, but then also it's hard for me to justify the things he's doing and be okay with that. He can't hurt people in these ways, sometimes even random people or sometimes people who might not deserve it. And so that part can be hard to deal with, but the part of him being hurt does, it does break your heart and you feel that, that he gets treated so negatively. And even in the movie, there's uh, this kind of um, plot, uh, not not plot twist, but part of the plot where there's a, a talk show, which like so many talk shows we have in all countries, but even here in the United States, and sometimes they make fun of people. And that's part of what it, we we look at it and we laugh and and we've all been guilty of that and me included where we laugh at other people's expenses where we think oh, okay this guy did something and let's just laugh at him or he's trying to be funny or he's trying to sing or try to do that and we're just all gonna ridicule him and laugh and put him down and i think it comes from lots of places first of all our own feelings of inadequacy or not being good enough. And so we like to put other people down or see them being embarrassed or humiliated can help us feel good about ourselves. And just a part of us that just thinks it doesn't matter when we're watching someone on TV, just like if it's a celebrity or just like someone on YouTube, we kind of dehumanize them in a way of like, it's just whatever, it's just something to laugh about. And so for me, it was very interesting. This point is made that should we just laugh at one another? Is it okay to make fun of someone? And to me, 
we really have to be aware of when we're laughing at someone else's expense. And sometimes people think, well, that's the only way things are funny. We have to make fun of each other. We have to make fun of celebrities. We have to make fun of people. We have to put people down sometimes to laugh. And I don't think that's true. I think many funny things happen in life that we can enjoy that don't have to actually put someone down, that we don't have to just make someone feel bad to make us feel good. I don't think it's some kind of equation that unless someone feels bad, the rest of us won't feel good. I think there are other ways for us to actually enjoy things and laugh and laugh at life and the way things happen and things we do. It doesn't mean we should never make fun of each other, but I think we always have to be aware that when we make fun of someone, if it's in a playful way, that they find it playful and are okay with it too. Whether this is a stranger or this is your husband or wife or family member or friend. So if you make a joke with your friend and your friend said, you know, when you say that it hurts my feelings, that's not a joke anymore. Now it's crossed the line. If they like it and they play back with you, it's great. And that's actually can be a good part of some friendships that they are able to play with each other in a way and tease each other in a way that's actually fun. But once it crosses a line, then it's no longer fun and that's not okay. And so here we see him, he's just being laughed at and people just laugh as if it doesn't matter that they're laughing at him, that you don't think about him. And that's kind of what you feel is that he even talks about how it's kind of like, you don't care that I'm sad or if you're hurting me. You don't care what's happening to me because I'm not you. And so we always have this ability to try to make people not us. When it's not me, then who cares what happens to him? If it's not my racial group or my sexual orientation group or my religious group, who cares what happened to those those people? They're not me. They're not us. And so it's a reminder that we're all, everyone is us. Someone who's very mentally ill that you might think is so different from you actually isn't. And they're still a human being deserving love and respect no matter what. Just because they're doing something and they look different doesn't mean you can make fun of them or they act differently doesn't mean we should make fun of them. So that was also a theme in the movie that I thought was actually a good one when you see this man being beaten up by society so bad and eventually he fights back. Of course, do I condone the violence or the way he's doing it? Absolutely not. But I think that social commentary was important of looking at how often we are mean to one another and make it seem like it doesn't matter that who cares. Um, so the movie itself is very dark. Please don't take your kids. I know I've heard some stories of people because it's in the Batman you know, genre of movies. They think, oh, my kid loves Batman. Let me go take them to the Joker. Definitely don't take any kids. And even yourself, if you haven't seen it, like I said, it is dark and disturbing. So just be ready for that if you do want to see it. Um, it, it's very disturbing. It's dark. And so you have to be ready for that and know what you're getting yourself into. And as I said, even myself, it's been, I think, five, six days since I've seen the movie. And sometimes I still think, is it good for people to see? Can it have a negative effect because of the ways it talks about violence and different things? The actor, Joaquin Phoenix, really does an amazing job. You feel like he's someone dealing with serious mental illness. You feel his pain, his disturbance, what he's going through. And that's really part of what makes it so disturbing is that you really feel his pain. He makes you feel it in a way that makes it very real. So his performance in and of itself, I think, was quite incredible. Even for me, it would bring up how I felt at times when I was 
doing an internship at the psychiatric hospital, just the look in his eyes or the lack of a look in his eyes, if you want to call it that, where you almost felt like no one was there at times, um, was something that I could relate to. So I thought he did a great job. The movie itself, dark, but powerful. Um, but I did want to make some of those points. And again, just want to close the segment mentioning that we want to respect people who are mentally ill and mental illness is not just one thing. It could be everything from depression to schizophrenia and everything in between. But no matter what someone is going through, we want to show them respect. No one deserves our ridicule and everyone deserves help and to be treated better. All right, going into our last commercial break, we'll be right back. back so this thursday here in the united states is halloween and so kind of wanted to uh, end the show this last segment in a theme related to the first two um in a way related to mental illness and things like that but also when it comes to halloween um it kind of is a cliche or cheesy thing but people wear costumes on halloween but i wanted to talk about the masks that we wear every day and trying to be ourselves. And so even in the movie Joker, he has the paint a lot of times where you see people wearing masks. But we sometimes wear these actual masks to, to become a character or to, on Halloween, get to act however we want. And sometimes it's interesting to look at what people want to be or how they want to act um, on that day. But to me, it's interesting to always think about the way we act differently every day, other day of the year as well. And so some of this, like I said, is cliche and cheesy and hard to really grasp because i think when we try to understand what it means to not wear a mask at all uh, it's not really clear what that is does anyone really know who they completely are and they completely free probably not there are so many restrictions that we get from culture and society and different things and also some of it might even be good we can't just do whatever we want whenever we want however we want when we live with other people, when we're surrounded by other people, when you have people that care about what you say and what you do, you should be mindful of that. So if you have a significant other, you have to be aware of what you do and how that's going to affect them. So you can't just say, well, I don't want to wear any mask and I should say anything, anytime, anyway. I actually don't agree with that. You should feel very comfortable. You should be very open with your partner, vulnerable and very transparent, but at the same time, mindful as well of how you affect them. Or to be a member of society, we sometimes have to wear different masks at different moments. If you are in your professional setting, you might be different than you are somewhere else. Even me here, if you hear me talking on my show, you only see some aspects. I don't want to say just one aspect of my personality, but some aspects, but not every part because I'm acting some parts of myself that make sense for the show or showing those parts of myself, but I'm not going to show other parts that might come out if I'm being silly or um, watching sports or having you know a good time in a different way. So we have to sometimes wear different masks that can make sense. You want your medical doctor to have some level of how they carry themselves that might make you feel better. But at the same time, sometimes we make those masks too rigid or we make it too um, difficult for people to be themselves. So when we talk about being ourselves, it's a very simple thing to just say, but very hard to do. And 
of course, we can talk about us as individuals being ourselves, but we can also talk about how we can make it easier for the people around us, our loved ones, to take those masks off and to show us more who they are. And what that entails is that we have to make them feel comfortable to be themselves. We have to allow for them that it's okay, whatever is behind the mask, I will love it, I will love you doesn't mean anything you do is okay or you can hurt me, but who you are will be acceptable no matter what. You don't have to hide what's there. And that also is easier said than done. And even as a parent, you can think your, your baby comes into this world without a mask, really comes into the world naked. But we know that through what you tell them in your own family and through what they get exposed to in society and in the culture you're going to be raising them in, they start to put some masks on. And so one of your jobs as a parent is to minimize the amount of masks or masking that your child starts to put on. So that means that whatever you talk about, the more you become judgmental about things, the more that's the mindset in general and the more things you judge about, the more masks they're going to put on. So I talked about before um, in the movie Joker, if you're telling your kids always be happy, they're going to put on a happy mask and that mask is going to cover some of the other feelings because they think mommy doesn't like sad or daddy doesn't like sad. So I shouldn't show those feelings so they can put a mask when it comes to their feelings. Or if you tell them gay people are bad or this kind of people are bad, then if they have their issues come up with their sexual orientation and they're unsure, they'll put a mask on that too. Or they won't even allow themselves to explore it. They already put on the mask of being straight because you've told them and shown them that this is the good way to be and any other way is bad. So they're not even going to let themselves recognize it. And this is why so many people years later, after even adulthood, even sometimes they've been married, will realize that maybe their sexual orientation isn't quite what they thought it was because they never actually explored it. They put the mask on. This is already me because this is what good is. This is what makes me be lovable. This is what makes me proud, makes my parents proud of me or not ashamed of me. So they become that. Or if you talk about other people, this is another thing that parents will sometimes do. They'll say, well, I talked about this other kid or I talked about this group that isn't us. So why would that affect my child? But when you already start judging some people as good and bad, as better than or worse than, it starts to create this mindset that some ways of being make you lovable and some are unlovable. Some make you a good person and some make you bad. And so it gives your child an uneasiness. So when you are judgmental even to the outside world, your child will internalize this feeling of judgmentalness from you that I can lose mom your daddy's love or I cannot be good enough. So be aware of how you even talk about other people that have nothing to do with you or your family or your child. If you see someone that's different from your family, talk about them in some way that shows respect, even if they are different. If you see someone who's even done something bad, rather than saying they're a bad person, talk about how bad that action was that they did. That's going to be very different than saying they're just evil and you're, you're either good or you're bad kind of a person. So as a parent, you have a very big role of allowing your child or disallowing your child to be themselves. And thankfully, children come to this world and are usually much more comfortable than we are as adults to show who they are. That's why you'll see kids doing funny things or just being silly in a way that's very natural because they're not thinking so much, thankfully, about 
who they should or shouldn't be or how they should or shouldn't act. But it's up to us not to put so many restrictions and to put those masks on. So essentially, you can imagine as a parent, you're given this beautiful baby, and this beautiful child, and then they start to act a certain way and you say something like, oh, you shouldn't do that or boys don't do this or girls don't do that or we don't do that. And really what you're doing is rather than you think you're teaching your child something, you're just putting a mask on their face. You're saying now you are this and never be anything else. It's not actually teaching them something. It's not giving them something. It's taking something away. You give them that mask but that takes away their ability and their freedom to be themselves or we don't cry or we don't whatever it might be that you're doing so as parents we play a very big role in allowing a child to be themselves or to not be themselves but then even as adults with the people around us you've probably experienced people that you have in your life where you feel like you can't be yourself you might feel like you're on alert they're going to judge you or you hear them judging other people a very common thing people experience is they'll be around someone who talks bad about other people with them, and they do it in the way where they say, well, it's me and you talking, so I'm on your side. But what most people tend to feel is that even if you're not the victim right now and they're talking about someone else, well, what is that person going to say when you're gone? And that's what usually is happening, right? So if you're five friends and then when one of them leaves, someone's talking about the one that left, you wonder, well, what happens when I leave? Are they going to be talking about me? Which actually usually is the case. And we don't feel very comfortable around that person. So they might even be someone who's charismatic or someone who's fun at the party or who gets a lot of attention because they're creating drama or they're talking about things in a way that makes them very fun. But people don't tend to feel comfortable to be themselves around a person who's talking bad about other people. So again, even not just with kids, but with adults, that same principle applies. The more judgmental you are even to outside people or even to people when they're not there, let's say, or to people in their face, they're not going to feel as comfortable with you. But on the other hand, we've likely experienced people in our lives who allow us to feel comfortable. The way they look at you, even the way they make you feel is warm and accepting that you can be you. Oh, what, what did, what happened today? Or what did you do? Not, oh, you did that? What are you doing? What's wrong with you? I would never do that. I would never, ever do something like that because I do X, Y, and Z. That doesn't make you feel comfortable the next time to share when you went through a hard time, when you made a mistake, as we all do, or if you did something you regret. There's a difference there. And so I think for all of us, we should strive to be that person who's more accepting. Now, sometimes people think, no, I'm not going to be that warm, cuddly type of a person because I have standards or I look at things in a way that means I'm not just going to accept everything. And so when I say be more accepting, it doesn't mean that we say everything is the same. So if someone uh, using, you know, the example of the movie Joker kills someone is the same as if they go and, um, you know, save their life. No, they're not the same thing. But the way we approach people can have a feeling of acceptance or judgmentalness. And I think people like to be judgmental at times because it does give them that feeling that I'm better than. See, I'm not like everyone else who thinks this and that is okay. You even hear people say it in this way sometimes. I don't accept those types of things. If you're performing below average, I'm not going to accept that. Or if I go to a restaurant and they do this, I'm going to make sure they know I'm unhappy because I don't accept inefficiency or we have other ways of justifying it to ourselves. What we try to show ourselves as better than. But this is coming from our own feeling of weakness and inferiority. 
I sometimes feel like I'm not good enough. So I have to compensate for that by thinking I'm better than other people and judging them by putting them down. Oh, look at those people that do this or do that. What we're really saying is, what if I'm sometimes the person that does the bad thing? What if I'm not good enough? So as much as we try to fool ourselves into thinking that by being judgmental, it's actually because I'm more advanced or I am more uh, have higher standards or I'm a better person than other people, really it's coming from our own weakness. It's not coming from a place of strength. And from my own experience, people that I've met that are very warm and accepting, genuinely warm and accepting. And that's actually maybe a key distinction, not just someone who says everything is okay no matter what. They can be coming more from a place of being a people pleaser. So they just want everyone to like them. They're trying to avoid conflict. That's different from people who are genuinely warm and accepting. My experience has been that those are very strong people. They're not warm and accepting because they're weak or because they're avoiding conflict, but that they see the good in people and they try to see that they can bring out even more good in each other and in themselves. It doesn't come from a sign of weakness. And so in these last few minutes, coming back to ourselves and recognizing the masks we've put on. And it's hard to recognize the masks sometimes because if we've been wearing them our whole lives, we think that's us. No, this is just me. I do things this way. I talk that way. And this is why self-discovery and self-awareness is so difficult because it's hard to tease these things apart. Do I really think this way and feel this way? Or is it because of my culture or because of my parents and my family that I act this way or that way? And getting in touch takes time. It's not something where, well, you just think about it and you're going to know it. It's a lifelong journey where we explore more. We pay attention more. But the first step is to look in. We have to try to look within ourselves, look past the masks to see who is there. You know what? I did this actually. I didn't, I didn't feel good. Everyone told me that I was so fun at the party, but it didn't actually feel good to me when I came home. Something felt like it was missing. And it's only when we pay attention to ourselves and what we're feeling and take the time to actually slow down and feel it that we might feel that something doesn't quite feel right. And it might not be clear exactly what that is, but if you reflect some more and pay attention, it might become more clear to you. And so I see therapy, something that I get to do in my work every day, as a process of slowly revealing the masks, of seeing what's there, seeing what's deeper. And that's why it's so important as a therapist to give that feeling of warmth and acceptance that we're not sure what we're going to see underneath that mask, but you can feel safe that it's okay to show it here. You will feel accepted here and feel loved for what you see there. And so that's why it's so important for the therapist when the client take the, takes those risks to show what's underneath the masks to actually say what's there is okay and beautiful and lovable. It's not something to be ashamed of or something that you should be afraid to show. That is also beautiful and actually even more beautiful because it's truly who you are. And even sometimes in therapy and people in general doesn't have to just be in therapy. Sometimes someone will show you their mask that they're proud of. They'll want to be, oh, you know, I'm actually the number one, blah, blah, blah. And they're showing off about how great they are. But actually what they really need is for you to see past the mask and say, you don't have to be the number one, blah, 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 for me to love you or for me to like you or for me to think you're good. You don't have to perform in that way. You're already enough as you are. So sometimes seeing through the masks doesn't mean just seeing past some ugly things. Sometimes it means you see past the beautiful to see something more beautiful, which is a genuine human being who doesn't need to compensate or to gain your trust or love. 
everyone is worthy of love just by being born, just like every baby who's born deserves love. doesn't mean that everything we do, we should look at as equal. We can be very uh, real with ourselves and say, you know what, this was good, this wasn't good, but I'm still worthy of love, just like a child who does good or bad things. We still love them. You might say, oh, you know, that wasn't good that you did this. I got to play with a very cute puppy today, and the puppy uh, peed on the carpet, which was not something I was very happy about. But I still love, he's very cute too, which makes it hard to be upset with him. But you still love the dog because, you know, he's the dog and he's doing actually what he probably does, and he's, there's a reason for it. But he doesn't need to do something for us to love him. And we're the same way. Now, don't go peeing on carpets, please. But realize that no matter who you are and what you are, that is okay. And so in the spirit of Halloween where we get dressed up, it's also a reminder that for the rest of the year to see if we can take those masks off and find who that real us is, who's the real me, and show that to ourselves and then show that to the world. All right, we've reached the end of tonight's show. Thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. Have a wonderful night. KTWV HD3 Los Angeles.